Not every woman is a natural beauty, but the right face cream can work miracles. Does my eyeshadow go with my clothes? Are my crow's feet a mortal disaster? Do my pores need foundation or plaster? Am I putting my best face forward? Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, August 27th. 2017. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael Portantier is a theater reviewer and essayist and is the chief New York theater critic at Talkin' Broadway. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. With us this morning, we have a very special guest. Scott Frankel is with us. Uh, Broadway fans will know that Scott is the composer of... Uh, Broadway's War Paint right now, as well as uh, was nominated for a Tony, a Drama Desk, and Out of Critics Circle for Grey Gardens. Uh, so, Scott, thank you for getting up on a Sunday morning and saying hello to us. People who know me will know that it's somewhat extraordinary that uh, I'm, I'm up before 12 noon, but I'm happy to be here. <laughs> well, we really appreciate it. it, it it's, it's often a... Uh, it's sometimes a... Uh, a a deal breaker to tell people oh we record Sunday morning uh, and people are like oh really I, I, I can't do it so thank you it's a special the, the, the miracle of caffeine I'm, I'm joining you live <laughs> excellent so um, tell us about the uh, the development of war paint and, and where was the genesis of the idea for you uh, you know, it's interesting. Some some projects uh, are ones where the um, the writers initiate uh, the project themselves, and that was the case with Great Gardens. With War Paint, uh, it was very happy uh, circumstance for us to get a call from the producer David Stone, who had uh, read the nonfiction biography, also called War Paint, that chronicles the rivalry between the two women. It's written by a a British uh, author named Lindsay Woodhead, and he had uh, read the book and thought it might. Uh, serve as a jumping-off point for a musical about uh, strong female characters in this instance who detested each other. And uh, I didn't know much about either woman, but uh, having uh, Doug, Michael, and and I read the book, and uh, we were immediately uh, intrigued. And uh, so the answer was a a pretty easy uh, yes. Yes, we would love to. So uh, did Patti LuPone and Christine Ebersole be mentioned quite quickly uh, did you write with them in mind did you know that was going to happen it was always a, it was always the, the task I think to to generate it for two larger than life actresses playing these two larger than life historical characters uh, Patty was on board first uh, and Christine was on board uh, somewhat uh, after that and uh, so yes the material was was uh, etched and and kind of bespoke tailored uh, with them in mind and for their their many strengths and and uh, and their very their uh, you know pretty prodigious skill set uh, vocally and uh, and acting wise as well 
I have a related question. Uh, the uh, uh, I would I think most people would say that Patty and Christine have very different types of voices. Uh, was that distinction between the two characters in place pretty much before they were cast? Yes, there, there's a, there's not a lot of historical footage of the women, but uh, Rubenstein uh, had a very pronounced uh, Slavic accent. She was a Polish emigre, uh, and English was not her first language. Mm. Uh, Arden was Canadian, uh, and and uh, had a you would say a, a more genteel, uh, uh, refined way of, of, of speaking. So. It seemed like there was a good opportunity to really uh, color them differently, both in terms of register and mm. and, in, and in terms of uh, the style of speaking. Great. So we have a, a cast recording of War Paint that has uh, has been released. Uh, tell us, um, how, what was your process for this, and did you need to make any uh, adjustments in the recording versus the Broadway show? Uh, I'm really pleased with the recording. Uh, the producer, Steve Epstein, is just fantastic to work with, and he was also uh, the producer of uh, Great Gardens and Far From Heaven uh, cast recordings. He's a wonderful collaborator. You know, he I, I always like to give him the first go because he's coming at the material uh, completely fresh, and I have my, having lived with it for so long, maybe not the most objective view of what will make a good recording or, as he puts it, you know, listening in your living room or, or in your car, what 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 both honors the material and tells the story, but what also may not be such good listening uh, on, on repeated on repeat. So uh, I, I uh, that coupled with the uh, time constraint, uh, you can get about seventy five minutes onto uh, old school compact disc. So. Uh, so, so that's where we were. We, it, it's most of the score with some very, very modest uh, excisions. Uh, you know, so many people, I mean, certainly I did growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, so many people come to Broadway scores via the, their first exposure on a cast recording. And I think, uh, so I think, it's, I think it's important to have the, the bulk of the score and to be able to let the score hopefully tell the, the dramatic arc of the piece uh, again, with some very, very minor uh, excisions. So when they, in 25 years from now, when they do the complete archival recording of the of the Warpaint <laughs> revival, maybe we could throw in some, <laughs> some extra, extra 15 minutes of, of goodies uh, that, that no one had heard on disc before. But short of that, uh, it's on there. And I have to say, it's uh, both women are in pretty titanic voice. Uh, some people may not know, you have to record cast recordings all in a 24-hour period. It has to do with equity regulation and pay scales. So it turns into a rather marathon uh, session. But uh, as I say, uh, the, the gods have smiled on us this, in this instance. Well, is it historically accurate that indeed the ladies didn't meet for a long, long time, or is that something you did for dramatic purposes? Uh, you know, the urban legend is, in fact, that they never met, uh, despite having salons uh, around the corner from each other in New York in various locations all of those years and having been uh, fierce rivals and competitors uh, uh, for, for their entire lives, essentially. It seems almost impossible to believe that they could not have been <laughs> at least in, have a passing uh, acquaintance with each other, but that's what they purported, and uh, I <laughs> don't have any evidence to the contrary. 
back to the cast album, uh, one thing uh, aside from everything else that it really has going for it is a dynamite opening number. I, I just love that number, Best Face Forward. Oh, that was, yeah. That actually, uh, that, when we did an out-of-town production at the Goodman Theater last summer, we had a, uh, a different opening uh, number called The Woman's Face, and uh, that was provocative in its own way, but I think we, I think we landed on the, on, the, on the best way in with, uh, no pun intended, with Best Face Forward. We uh, before we started recording, James mentioned bells are ringing, and it struck me that the, the general concept of uh, that number is is a little similar to the original the concept of that of that the opening number for that show, just with this disembodied voice telling these women what they need. Did um, do you recall if that ever entered your mind? I hadn't thought of that specifically, but certainly. You know those those the films of the period was really more what I had in the back of my head. I think where uh, in in the kind of very very stylized fashion, a disembodied male or female voice will uh, <laughs> will, will 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 come on the on the screen and the action will stop and the and the, the kind of voice of God will present this question like, are you? Are you proud of your appearance? Is this the best you can do? And it seemed very. Uh, we we wanted it to be kind of a fun, but also a little bit prickly. That uh, that somehow society has it rigged against women that no matter what they're doing, uh, someone will find what their appearance wanting. Yeah, and I'm sure that that's where bells are ringing out the idea also. Mm-hmm. Could, could well could well be. Every uh, adaptation winds up having something thrown out that uh, the authors really wish they could have included. Was there any incident in the book that you said, oh, oh, that's a song. Wow, what a great idea that unfortunately just there wasn't room for it or it would make the show too long or it just didn't fit into your plan? Do you recall any – I can Go think ahead. of one for I can think of one for sure. You know, Rubenstein died in her nineties, Arden uh, well into her eighties, and so in a two and a half hour book musical, it's pretty much impossible to encapsulate their entire lives. But one one thing we didn't talk about at all, and we, it's just it's just another delicious thing that that seems invented, but it's true. Both women married uh, European princes of dubious titles and perhaps even more dubious sexual orientation. I don't recall the actual order, but I'm pretty sure that uh, first Rubenstein uh, married a prince, and she became the Princess Gorelli. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, not content to let Rubenstein uh-huh. have the title, uh, somewhat uh, afterwards, Arden decided she needed to marry a prince of her of her own. Uh, and so, uh, we early on we were a little bit obsessed with this notion that there would be a, a song called "The Waltz of the Princes," and that they would both. Uh, that they would both be, uh, and we were going to double cast the 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 men in their lives uh, mm-hmm. in the Broadway production played by uh, John Dawson and Doug Sills. We were going to have them double cast in Act Two as these as these uh, squires of of, of of questionable title. Uh, but we we it, it was a fun idea. We did write a song, and it was called the song. The song was called uh, "Get Me a Prince." <laughs> and uh, uh, but but it but it did it, we decided it was perhaps more fun for the authors than and it really kind of veered off of our storytelling uh, tracks. So we that 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 will also go on the 25th anniversary recording, perhaps or perhaps I could do a, I could do a 54 below evening of the cut cut <laughs> songs from Warpaint. 
the sooner the better. <laughs> so uh, the creative team, you have a book by Doug Wright. You wrote the music, and you have lyrics by Michael Corey, and it was directed by Michael Greif. Did the four of you have a lot of working sessions together, or did you do a lot of uh, independent sessions and sent ideas uh, to each other? How did it work out? Uh, usually, Doug, Michael, and I... Uh... We, we met a lot, you know, uh, the, 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 the trick is, is that the, the shape of people's lives in terms of a biography or documentary shape is not really a shape of a, of a narrative. So in, in terms of finding uh, which uh, anecdotes and which parts of their lives we wanted to use in terms of making a satisfying structure, the three of us met qu- quite, a, quite a bit. Uh, and then I think uh, you know, Michael and Doug, the book writer and lyricist, respectively, they, uh, you know, since we had a good shorthand relationship from Grey Gardens, they're very, very uh, keen on cross-pollinating ideas. So if uh, there would be times when Doug would write a scene and there would be a particular phrase or an expression uh, or a sentence that would jump out as Michael, uh, jump out for Michael as a potential lyric idea, uh, and vice versa. There were times when some of, in in some of Michael's encapsulated lyrics, Doug would find something that he might want to expand in terms of uh, a prose scene. Uh, and then you, we kind of we kind of kept Greif informed, uh, but again, in that same way that we didn't want to. Uh, that I relied on Steve Epstein to get a, a, a first cohesive look at the piece as a whole. I think we we didn't present chunks to to Michael Greif until we had a until we had a first draft. So he would uh, he would come at it you know with with fresh eyes. Uh, did you mention when you? I know that you mentioned that David Stone brought you together. Did you mention when David Stone brought you together? How how long was this whole process? Uh, yes, we. I think we started writing in the end of 2011, and uh, we had a first draft in the middle of 2013. Uh, and then we were out of town, uh, and then there were further drafts, and then uh, and then Michael uh, Greif and David got busy with it then, so we had... We, you know, get, getting, getting. We, we continued to work on it, and then they were in production. They're both out of town and and, uh, and in New York, and then we kind of came back to it in time to uh, prep for the Goodman Run uh, in fifteen sixteen. Hmm. That's uh, it. it Two thousand eleven sounds both so far and so near. You know, everybody's working on other things, kind of, you know, concurrently. Or, I mean, I used to, I used to. In a way, it seems like a long time, but as you say, in a way, it doesn't. And uh, because the gestation period and there, it can be so long for musicals, and there's so many other variables in terms of people's availability and interest and. Uh, they're jigsaw puzzle pieces. Uh, you know, I, I used to work very line- linearly. I would write one thing, and then I would kind of keep working on that one thing and polishing that one thing. And 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 uh, now I I find that it's it's better to have uh, other things in in various stages of, of fermentation. And so you could kind of jump back and forth again because it, it does take so long to get from idea to to production. Let's uh, talk just a second for about the cast recording. I mean, 
Warpaint went into previews in March. It opened in April. In May, you had a digital download available of your cast recording. When did you did you record uh, in late April, early May? And what was that like? You know, opening yeah, so, up a Broadway show and then having to record. Sure. the uh, The sessions were at the maybe two or three weeks before we opened, so kind of late late April. Um, you know, it's great because the actors we were mostly the exact same cast uh, from Chicago so even though they're I'd say about 30% of the show was 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 new for New York in both in terms of score and and text but the fact that the actors had uh, lived with those roles and with the with the bulk of the score they kind of had been marinating in it for 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 12 months uh you know that that gives a, a great advantage. It shows that are you know that open brand new in New York, open cold, and then you have to run to the studio. Sometimes those parts are not quite as lived in, uh, and sometimes the you know uh, you, you 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 want there to be a, an ease and a familiarity and a, uh, you know like a like a like a like a lived in piece of clothing as opposed to a, a new shoe that's going to be cutting into your heel. So there, we, 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 had, we had that advantage for sure. It's usually, but it is still a pretty stressful uh, day, as, as I mentioned earlier, to, to try to get, make sure you have the, uh, the best take and the best coverage for all the material you need in this very, very uh, uh, fixed window. Uh, but we were, we were, as I say, delighted to be reunited with Steve Epstein and, uh, and uh, this instance was my first time working uh, on Ghost Light with Kirk, Kirk Deutsch, which was also a very, very happy experience. So, yeah, we were we were thrilled to do it. And, and again, both both Christine and and Patty are uh, are such incredible pros and have such experience not only on stage but also in the studio. So they knew how to pace themselves, and we made sure that we did uh, we didn't tax them unduly. <laughs> so. Um... This is your second show, uh, Broadway show with Christine, having done Grey Gardens with her yes. previously. Uh, uh, when you were writing this, did you have in mind that, hey, this would be great for Christine? Uh, yes. You know, Arden uh, wasn't quite as tall and blonde as Christine, <laughs> but, but uh, a few people are. And it, it, it just seemed like uh, it seemed like it would be a... a that she would be very well cast in this role. You know, there, there is a, there is a, when, when, in her natural state, she's pretty genteel uh, in terms of her presentation, and uh, it seemed like uh, some of the more presentational uh, aspects when we meet her at the beginning of the show, when she enters, uh, you know, from a, a giant red door, and uh, it seemed, it did seem very much uh, her, her world. Uh, and then, and it, just in the way too that Patty uh, seemed like the kind of perfect foil, as the more uh, uh, Rubenstein was very, very petite, and uh, as is Patty, and so they, it seemed like they would be uh, physical foils as well as uh, vocal vocal foils. But yes, we were very happily reunited with Christine, and uh, and it is it is. I mean, I I, I think she is a, a muse for me, and I think that I I know her instrument very very well at this point so to be able to i mean it helps any composer i think 
you know, I, I, as you can tell probably from my speaking voice, I have a kind of nasal Midwestern uh, baritone. And so uh, having Christine's kind of shimmering soprano and full-throated uh, belt when she wants to uh, kind of in my in my head and in my ears is, is really uh, invaluable in terms of being able to uh, conjure a, a, a character. So during work sessions, uh, when the, the three of you were together putting together the uh, stuff before you gave it to Greif, uh, who sang the Christine parts? You? Uh, uh, oh, yes. Um, <laughs> yes. It, it, and, and, some, and sometimes it's, it's – I sometimes I, I would do something and my collaborators would look at me and I'm like, no, really, you guys, it's going to be great for her. You're just not hearing it because I am the unfortunate mm-hmm. conduit of the material. Mm. Uh, but what, what, what's also what's – also, an usually unnerving and thrilling moment is when I have to sing the material for either woman. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, that, that's daunting and complicated in a, in a completely different way. Patty uh, lives part of the year in, uh, in South Carolina on the beach, and uh, I would go down and play her some material, but the configuration in her music room is that the piano, uh, is, is, upright piano, is facing a wall. So I would be... In a way, it was better. She would be sitting behind me, and I would be kind of trying to sing my heart out, but I couldn't see any of her reaction until I t- turned around at the very, very end. Uh, but uh, but uh, so when you, it, it's also very tricky because uh, I feel like I know Patty's voice very well at this point. Is you know, and so with the, some of the material, you want to give some indication of of the flavor, not only of the character or the accent, but of maybe some of their uh, vocal. Uh, Qualities, and you want to just give a hint of it, though. I don't want it to seem like I'm 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 doing them. Uh, so maybe it was just as well that I couldn't see her, you know, looking at me. Some of my favorite cast recordings, unofficial cast recordings, are those of the composer singing the first drafts of these things. We Absolutely, have, <laughs> we have a lot of those floating around. I mean, I think I think I'm probably harder on myself than I, than I than I need to. I, I've heard some of those, the 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 Bernstein ones in particular. Uh, it some of it, it really is hard, hard to, because he, he was perhaps even more vocally limited than, than I am. Uh, so it is, it's, it's a little bit hard to get the sense of it. And then there are some people who, uh, you know, are fantastic doing their own material. It's like Coleman was fantastic doing his own material. Mm. Uh, and, and Fred Ebb was fantastic mm. at delivering his, his and John Kander's material. So, uh, but there is something about hearing it, uh, I guess I could say unadorned, where you could really when you can really focus on, or you can you can you can see the the thread before it gets you know blown up, blown into the suit. I don't know if you just happened to mention Cy Coleman just at random, but you may know that they just released the uh, demo recordings of Barnum. I did not know that. I'm a huge nope. huge Cy Coleman fan, uh, and I oh, yeah. uh, and and also he was an incredible uh, pianist. My God. Oh Phenomenal. sure. To say the least. And by the way, um, that recording of Barnum you should get because I am telling you, I bet they raised all the money at that session because it came across so well entirely. <laughs> anyway, that's that's a, a footnote, and I'm sorry to bring it up, but uh, oh, it is a joke. I, I'll get it. I could totally see him. I could totally imagine him inhabiting that, ty- that title character very, very well. I did want to mention also when Grey Gardens opened off Broadway, uh, a friend of mine had his outgoing message uh, for his voicemail. And at first uh, he put 
around the world as the background. And I was like, oh, that's so pretty. <laughs> and then and then he changed it to another winter in a summer town. So it was he was really into that score. <laughs> and I, I, just, I just have a question. Is, is your friend on any antidepressant medication whatsoever? <laughs> <laughs> that said, what a wonderful compliment to get two recordings of the same score in an era with an original cast album is even unlikely for so many shows yes. to have two. What a wonderful was, compliment. In, in, indeed. I mean, the expense is so great. Now, the, I mean, the, the, we didn't know uh, at Playwrights Horizons, uh, you know, the, the show opened to kind of mixed notices and uh, and there was an offer to record and we, we happily took it. And then we kept... Uh, extending, I think it was scheduled to run six weeks, and then we extended it to eight weeks, and then to nine weeks, and then finally on the tenth, the very end of the tenth and and final week, because there was another show coming in, uh, the Broadway producers uh, uh, saw it and it decided to move it. So, uh, and then again, also uh, like Warpaint, having an opportunity to uh, keep working on the material and 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 seeing what you uh, could improve or what in, what you learned from an audience from the from the first gestation and what you felt like you could uh, do better. So it was great to be able to to re-record and and have the the full score uh, uh, captured the, the the second time around as well. So uh, talking about Grey Gardens, um, it, it's had an, uh, a a few high-profile productions out east on the island and on the west coast and things like that. Do we think that, think that we'll uh, see any other uh, run, uh, any other large productions? Uh, I hope so. It's been interesting to see it, uh, no pun intended, around the world. There was a fantastic production in, in London uh, uh, with Jenna Russell and Sheila Hancock uh, year, uh, last year, or last January, uh, yeah, I mean it's uh, and they certainly know about aristocrats with no money living in in moldering country houses in the United Kingdom. So that, although they didn't know the documentary film, but we, it's also been interesting to see it. There was a great production uh, in in Tokyo and one in uh, Rio as well. The one in Rio, uh, the second act, uh, both the set was kind of it was almost like Dr. Seuss. Both women's beds were perched atop these giant mountains of piles of garbage i mean very very vertical and they had to climb up the garbage pile to get to these beds and i thought oh my god they're 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 the they're the visual equivalent of their their hillside slums the favelas and that you see just uh uh, just the top the hills in in rio so it's been interesting to see it culturally how it how different uh, societies respond to the material but uh yeah, I would, I would, I would love to see it make its way back to New York uh, one day. There's certainly uh, two, fan, two fantastic parts for for women, so perhaps we'll see a a, a, a revisit, a revisiting uh, before I get too much older. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, I want to thank you so much for getting up on a Sunday morning. We know how hard it is for the Broadway folks to uh, Sunday morning is sacred, uh, Scott and. Uh, thank you so much. And your new cash recording of War Paint can be found over at Ghostlight Records. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Amazing. And, uh, and we're still uh, very happily playing at the Nederlander. Uh, if you go mm-hmm. to uh, warpaintmusical.com uh, and uh, Ticketmaster, and, uh, the gals are uh, really bringing it eight times a week. It's been, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it, it's, it is, a, it's 
still kind of amazes me. You know, if, if sometimes if I'm in the neighborhood and if I sneak in the back of the theater at around 10, 20, and I, I, I open the doors in the back, and I, a part of me half expects to find there's no one there and that the cat's <laughs> on home and, like, 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 the children aren't doing what you're supposed to be doing. But <laughs> I, walk, I walk in, and everyone's in their seats, and they're listening attentively, and the women are on stage kind of knocking it out of the park, and it's like, oh, there's just it's kind of a, it's kind of a, kind of still 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 amazes me. <laughs> Absolutely, we'll have a link to uh, warpaintmusical.com as well in the show notes. And um, Scott, thank you so much, and have a great rest of your Sunday. Gentlemen, lovely to talk to all of you. And uh, now that I'm up, I feel like the dog is going to ah. go out. So, so, she, so she, Boo, the dog, and I are going to hit the streets. <laughs> great, great. Bye-bye. <laughs> bye bye. Bye. I see the single women. To mask their faces in dimly lighted cafes, they slip in and take their places. What are they doing by themselves? They are sitting at tables, dining all alone. Can I count on you? Okay, in the review section, the three of us got a chance to see The Prince of Broadway. So, Peter, why don't you start us off with that? Well, you know, this show is very much misnamed when you think about it because uh, Hal Prince is not the Prince of Broadway. He's the King of Broadway. Hmm. Uh, Sorry, Max Bialystok, but it's true because uh, (laughs) who has done better? 21 Tony Awards? I mean, really. Now, this is a show that's become quite controversial because uh, certainly the production numbers such as Vilcoman are especially beautiful girls don't match up to the originals. Uh, We're talking about a cast of nine here, five women, four men. So uh, it can't be grandiose as those other spectaculars were. So that has been a point of criticism. But I'll tell you what I loved, and I mean loved, about Prince of Broadway is that so many of the performances of these songs are completely different and uh, with different values than I saw in the original productions. And frankly, uh, I'm not uh, ashamed to admit that um, aside from She Loves Me and the original Fiddler on the Roof, I have seen every Harold Prince production with its original cast since 1962. I'm talking musicals. I've missed some of the plays. But anyway, you know, so to see Karen Ziemba do so what with so much thought given to every word, and I feel easily easily surpassing Lottie Lenya is just an amazing thing. And that's what happens so much of the time. We are not getting a photocopy uh, of the um, original performances. We are getting paintings instead of photocopies. We are getting different interpretations. We are seeing them through different filters. And that's what made Prince of Broadway so interesting to me. Sure, it's not a spectacle. Sure, uh, Beowulf Beowulf Boris, who had a lot to do, a lot to do with plenty of sets here. The sets are pretty much the sets you see on the Tony Awards when they bring them in just a little bit here and there to uh, suggest what's going on. Sure. Um, But all things considered, it is a wonderful stroll down memory lane, and I do believe that uh, most of the performers are really uh, delivering fine performances, even when they're not in major roles. But I would like to cite Amelia Haywood, Terry Levada, Aaron Roth, 
and Kate Sorg, and names that, of course, mean nothing to any of us and meant nothing to me until I saw the show. And I didn't see them in the show. But these are the dressers. And I am telling you what work they have to do, getting people in and out of costumes. I mean, because when you think of it, since we're going from one musical to another uh, here and there, well, <laughs> good Lord, um, Everybody has to be in a different costume the next time he or she enters. So uh, I, I want a special Tony Award for the dressers. I really do because they are doing yeoman work, uh, getting them in. A, a lot of costumes we've seen uh, replicated here. Um, William Ivy Long has duplicated costumes, but not always. For example, the famous red dress um, for Desiree in Little Night Music. And I don't have to tell you what she's singing when she's in that new dress. Uh, Emily Skinner is in a very different dress. So they're not all the same costumes, but um, I thought it was a terrific show. And I know it's one that has uh, split the critics uh, pretty much, uh, maybe even more to the negative side than the positive. But I had uh, quite a good time, and um, I hope it runs beyond its uh, scheduled limited engagement. I know it would have to move to another theater, and that's prohibitively expensive. But uh, I, I do believe people should see these different interpretations of these songs. I completely agree about all of that. Also, I'm so happy that you like the show so much, given what you had said last week about how generally right, right. I take it back. <laughs> <laughs> generally speaking, you are not into reviews. Absolutely, yes. Uh, but yeah, there was a lot of people making songs their own in, in a very, very interesting and exciting way. I have to mention. Tony Yazbek's performance of The Right Girl from Follies, which, I mean, it literally almost stopped the show the night I was there, which happened to be the same night Peter was there. So I think he can attest to that. And then uh, so many other examples. I thought, um, I don't know if you agree, that the very first few lines of The Ladies Who Lunch, I sort of felt like uh, Emily Skinner was almost imitating Elaine Stritch, but only the first few lines. And then she went a very different way with it. And it's so hard to go a different way with that number. Uh, but I thought she was extremely successful. I thought um, there are so many, so many examples. But in Cabaret, um, I have said many times that I, I am not a f generally a fan of the revisal version, this Sam Mendes directed revisal version where everything is so, so dark and so over the top and, and all of the subtext is played on the top. Uh, but in this case, I thought that Brianna Marie Parham did a really excellent job with the title song as far as striking a balance between a, a more traditional sort of good time girl interpretation and uh, the, the much darker probing self-aware uh, kind of interpretation that we've seen since the Mendes production. Well, I have seen uh, now, I think 13 Sally Bowles uh, in my <laughs> life. Um, and this is the only time I have ever heard the title song of cabaret interrupted with applause. Uh, that's really something that uh, in the middle of the song, the audience was so moved by what this woman was doing that they had to applaud then and there. They couldn't wait till the end. Yes. I mean, that's how good it is. And, and I, you know, I can't go on cause there's just so many Chuck Cooper's if I were a rich man to me was completely delightful. And 
other people, uh, uh, Brandon Uranowitz, uh, especially in Tonight at Eight, but everyone has several moments to shine, and I thought that was great. And as uh, I just in, in closing, oh, uh, I really liked um, Jason Robert Brown's work uh, on the show in terms of uh, both the new song he wrote to to end the this show, but also the uh, arrangements, orchestrations, and music supervision. I uh, it's um, the overture. The Overturist, I love The Overturist. Uh, other people did not like The Overture. They thought it was uh, two brief snippets from each song uh, from all of these shows. I thought it was absolutely great. And by the way, um, it's a, a fairly large orchestra for, for, for Broadway nowadays, and especially for that size theater. I counted it's about 15 pieces. Mm-hmm. And, they're in, and they're in a, a pit um that is at least partially exposed when, when do you see that anymore mm-hmm. um so you know so there's so much to love about this show and um as far as the title i i i i'd like to if i could uh quote uh my the last paragraph of my review for talkingbroadway.com which says several years ago a minor figure in the new york theater world <laughs> copyrighted the title mr broadway for himself something he was able to do simply by filling out the paperwork and paying a fee appalled by this action <laughs> i announced to everyone who would listen if anybody deserves a title like that it's hal prince mm-hmm. of course he would never have the nerve to claim it but prince mm-hmm. of broadway provides more than ample proof that this extraordinary artist and 21-time Tony Award winner deserves whatever deeply respectful honorific anyone might choose to bestow on What's also interesting about that, Michael, is that Hal Prince learned his trade from George Abbott, who was previously known as Mr. Broadway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and maybe and maybe in his mind, of course, of course, this show would never even have the title Prince of Broadway if that wasn't his of last course, name, name. Right. Exactly. But if Absolutely. anything, he may think of he, he may think of himself, if he did at all, as the Prince of Broadway and George Abbott as the king of Broadway. Right, 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 right. <laughs> indeed. <laughs> Though uh, he certainly eclipsed that career and was far more daring than George Abbott ever even gave a thought of being. So, sure. uh, yeah, sure. so uh, so that was uh, pretty impressive as well. By the way, listening to that overture, um, all of us uh, so-called savants, you know, are, are smugly listening and saying, oh, that's this song. Oh, that's that song. But only a cherished few will be able to pick out The Blob, a song that didn't wind up uh, in the original uh, Merrily We Roll Along. So uh, so if, if you're suddenly consternated with a few measures of, wait a minute, what's that? I don't know that. Uh, oh, my God, I don't know that. Oh, this is a disgrace. I don't know that. You know, don't feel so bad because um, <laughs> The Blob isn't a well-known show tune, is it? No. Well, how how many of us are going to be able to actually say that they saw uh, a, a number from Superman on a Broadway stage? Well, you know, this is a problem. The Superman number is a problem, and I'll tell you why. Uh, because um, the song is You've Got Possibilities, and it's um, sung by a character in Superman named Sydney, a woman, uh, even though the name is Sydney. Uh, there are women, of course, named Sydney, but most of the time we think of Sydney as a man's name. Anyway, in Superman, the musical that came out in 1966, 
um, they decided to have a woman who was interested in Clark Kent. Not Superman now, but Clark Kent. Okay, it's an interesting idea. That said, the problem is that when a woman walks on stage after we see the Superman scream come down, the audience is well within its rights to assume that this is Lois Lane. Because mm-hmm. who else of any significance that's a woman in Superman? So you have to assume it's Lois Lane. Now, to be fair... Prince and Susan Stroman tried to address this issue by having Clark come out and immediately say, hello, Sydney." But I'm not sure that the audience really hears it, or maybe they assume that this is a pet name that he has for her. You cannot expect an audience to say, oh, that isn't Lois Lane. Mm, now, yeah. the problem with that is, of course, that um, here she is coming on to Clark Kent um, and really getting very physical with him. Well, that's something Lois Lane would never do. So under those circumstances, I do believe people must be terribly confused by that number. <laughs> and and worse, 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 worse is at one point when she gets very seductive with him, she takes off his glasses. Now, in the world of Superman, <laughs> taking off the glasses is enough to reveal Superman. Now, we all know in real life that wouldn't happen. I mean, for example, if, you, if, if somebody who doesn't wear glasses shows up in an office the next day to work with glasses because he got his eyes examined and now he has to wear glasses. People would say, oh, you've got glasses. Nobody would say, who are you? I mean, they would, you know, so I mean, the, the whole thing about glasses is a ridiculous thing to begin with. But in the world of Superman, it's enough to reveal him as Superman. And I really feel, given the fact that there are so many other songs that could have been chosen, I do think this was a mistake to include You've Got Possibilities from Superman. Nothing against Charles Strauss, nothing against Lee Adams, nothing against anybody. But I do think it confuses the audience who assumes it's Lois Lane. And why is Lois Lane so interested in Clark Kent right now? They could have fixed that by saying, hello, Sydney. have you seen Lois? Oh, good idea. <laughs> good for you. Good for you. I want to say, Michael Zavia, what a perfect Superman. Well, as we learned from Sunset Boulevard, too, you know, I mean, uh, where he certainly let us see that uh, he has the Superman body. You know, just quickly, do you think that um, uh, I imagine that when the show was done originally that they had to get the rights to the costume, do you suppose? And, and do you suppose that's still an issue so many decades late, later? One of the reasons I'm, I'm told, um, I was told at the time, I don't know if this is true, as I always say, I never say what I say is true. I only tell you what I hear. But um, the reason we had people like Sidney and Max Mencken in the Superman comic strip is because mm-hmm. they couldn't get the rights to all the characters. So it may very well be that the uh, the rights are very sticky involved with Superman, even down to, as you say, Michael, the costume. Who knows? It could very well be a very difficult uh, negotiation point. Or I suppose it could be that the costume is not an issue at all because, of course, originally it was just in a in a cartoon, you know, in a in a newspaper cartoon. So maybe mm, yeah. it's not covered, you know. I don't know. Yeah. Could be. Is it long enough ago to, for the design to be in the public domain? Another good question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, there was something else. Oh, in, uh, do you know if I don't know Superman at all? Uh, that the show. Um, did they change the lyric or something? Because something that uh, was said during the show seemed like it was very uh, technology recent. Uh, she had said something. I can't remember off the top of my head. It was like... Um, I don't know what you're referring to, but I don't think there was any change. I don't either. 
Uh, I have to go back and look and look at the script because uh, something is said, and I said, "Oh, that's that's not from the '60s or when when the show was originally out there." So I'm going to have to add a dissenting view on this show. You uh, won't be the first. Uh, and uh, I, I think that without this amazing cast on stage, I think that the cast saved it. I think that is perhaps a direction issue. Um, and, uh, and also that, uh, they, they told a little bit of Hal's story, but only enough for people who are really well familiar with Broadway and Hal Prince. I don't think that they gave enough of it, uh, and explained enough of it. Uh, I mean, those in the theater community certainly know that glasses on the head is Hal Prince, but mm-hmm. people outside of the community, I think that people sitting, mm-hmm. Sitting sure. in in the Freedmen are sure. going to be confused. Why is everybody wearing glasses on their head, and 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 why are all these people uh, speaking as someone? To, so that that directorial device that they use there, or however they presented it, I think was was confusing to non theater people. And I think that it's go see this show just for the amazing cast. But it, like you said, the production numbers. Are not as uh, not as glorious as the original productions because you're not going to get that with with nine people on the cast. But these are some. This is some amazing cast. And somebody had commented to me, um, you know, they uh, they they don't give the ability for a newcomer to break into Broadway here. And I was like, this is not that show. This is not that that show where you're gonna let <laughs> let somebody without a Broadway credit come in and uh, and take this because each one of those nine people has to carry the show at one point or another. Um, yeah, you know, I'm sorry I didn't mention Tony Asbeck and the Right Girl. One thing I want to say oh, is yeah. at one point, one point uh, he's looking at his legs, looking back and forth and back and forth while he's tapping, and it's almost as if one leg represents Sally, his wife, and <laughs> the other Margie, his mistress. I mean, I, I thought that was a, a, a tremendously interesting detail. And I just wanted to say, uh, for the record, I, I don't want to mislead. I do think that there are a fair number of. Uh, unwise decisions made in putting the show together. I guess just for me, the totality of it was so much more positive than negative that, uh, I mean, sometimes it really is just, it does just come down to glass half empty or glass half full, doesn't it? When we're looking at these things and partly depends on what you were expecting and, and also, you know, what you think it should be as to what they did. Uh, so I, I don't want to create the impression that I think it's perfect, but it's, but to me, it, there's just so much in it. That's wonderful. And that's basically how I feel. Okay. What I also want to say, you know, you brought up the fact that I said last week and I'll stand by it that I don't like reviews. Perhaps the difference here for me is the fact that, uh, yes, I did see uh, these numbers originally uh, for the most part. And, you know, things like Ain't Misbehaving, 
I didn't. Things like sophisticated ladies, I didn't. Mm. So I was able, and also the famous statement that Arthur Lawrence made about Sondheim uh, songs are often like little one-act plays. So that uh, that applies here, of course, to uh, some of the Sondheim material that's in the show, and also applies to uh, songs that aren't Sondheim. Old Man River, uh, in its own way, is a little one-act play. So, and and certainly, if I were a rich man, is as well. So I think that's the reason why this had more power for me than the average review uh, where it's just song after song that I've heard before, but not in, in, in the original context to say, wow, that's a different interpretation. Right. Well, um, I'll end on a positive note is that I now have my uh, Halloween costume for this year. I just got a pair of glasses. I'll <laughs> Prince. For you. Good for you. <laughs> All right. Uh, the two of you got a chance to get over to the signature to see Van Gogh's ear. So, Michael, why don't you start us off with Van Gogh's ear? This is a very singular, unusual production by the Ensemble for the Romantic Century. Uh, well, I, I'm saying that not having seen any of their previous work. Apparently, uh, this is the general style that they do in their shows. Uh, this uh, show, uh, Van Gogh's Ear, uh, features an actor, a wonderful, wonderful, great actor named Carter Hudson, who I really enjoyed off-Broadway in The Effect a few years ago. And he plays Van Gogh. And all of the text in the show, uh, or I guess 99% of it, consists of... Uh, Letters that Van Gogh wrote to various people, uh, primarily his brother Theo during his lifetime. And it kind of charts his uh, creative process and then also his um, his incipient uh, uh, madness and then uh, the uh, the descent into that. And then also his uh, his financial his really very, very severe financial situation. Um, and all of that is 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 really interesting to hear the exact words. I, I don't know how much familiarity people have with Van Gogh's letters, but if you, whether or not you have already read them, to, to hear an actor deliver them, especially an actor as good as this one, is really great. But um, the uh, these are interwoven with multiple uh, excerpts of music written uh, around the time of Van Gogh's lifetime by... Uh, Debussy, Forêt, Chanson, uh, César Franck, and uh, I guess that's it. Se but several pieces by, by each of these composers, um, both uh, instrumental and vocal pieces. Uh, the vocal pieces are sung by Renee Tatum and Chad Johnson, who also uh, sort appear as other characters in Van Gogh's life. Um, uh, Renee Tatum, uh, well, uh, I, I'm sorry, um, Ch uh, Chad Johnson appears as Theo, but does not speak as him. He only sings various songs. So if this sounds a little confusing, um, uh, I suppose maybe it is. Uh, and if you see the show, it's, it's a, it's really almost a mood piece. Uh, you hear these beautiful pieces of music and then you see uh, uh, incredibly gorgeous well done projections of 
of of Van Gogh's paintings sometimes magnified greatly so that you see uh, you almost feel like you see the brush strokes in in, in huge huge enlargements um, and they're they're projected in, in such a technically superior way uh, on the set in in like little uh, uh, rectangles and 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 cubes and uh, in various places all over the set um, and this is happening while you're hearing the monologues and also while you're hearing the music I um, guess that my uh, if I had ex- known what to expect i i would have enjoyed this show more i just felt that uh there was so much music uh and absolutely gorgeous music but so much of it that it really worked against whatever drama was created by the the speaking of the letters by carter hudson i think if um uh it was a two-act show uh with an intermission, and I guess it was uh, about two hours uh, in full length, including the intermission. I think if half of the music had been cut and the show had been done intermissionless uh, for, for about an hour and 15 or an hour and a half, it would have been much better. Uh, the only other person, by the way, who is in the show very briefly is Kevin Spiritus, um, an actor who uh, many of our listeners may have seen on television or on stage in several things. And he plays a doctor and he reads um, a letter uh at one point that the doctor wrote. And I think that's the only uh, text in the entire script. That's not Van Gogh's own words. Uh, but so it's, um, don't go expecting a, a, a traditional play in, in any respect. Uh, it, if you just know that you're going to hear really gorgeous music and see incredibly beautiful projections uh, and then also get to hear a, a wonderful actor reading Van Gogh's words and acting out his situation, uh, then I think you might enjoy the show under those circumstances. All right, Peter, what did you think? Well, um, uh, it's the damnest thing I've ever seen. Um, f- f- boy, yes, those projection projections are extraordinary beyond belief. Yes, you really do feel like you're seeing the texture of the brush strokes, as Michael mentioned, and mm-hmm. it's 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 amazing for that. And um, I smell a drama desk award already, yeah. really, in this season for for projections because, whoa, uh, 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 astonishing. There's no question that. This company, the Ensemble for the Romantic Century Company, is trying to forge a new form because they are mixing opera with concert. I mean, when the musicians are playing, nothing else is happening on the stage. It's as if you're at a classical music concert. Mm. Nobody's making. It's not as if there are people walking around doing things. They, they really want you to concentrate on the music as if you were at a concert. And similarly speaking, when suddenly there's an operatic aria, that uh, it's amazing the first one that happens because there's Van Gogh's brother who for the longest time, maybe 10 minutes, is walking around the stage and hasn't said a word, hasn't reacted at all. And you finally expect him to speak and he doesn't speak, he sings. And um, it's not the type of thing you're expecting at all. So we are talking about a forging of opera, theater and concert music. Fine. You know, it it on paper maybe that sounds pretty good. The idea of merging them, but as much as I like meatballs, 
And as much as I like whipped cream and as much as I like uh, what else, I don't <laughs> some other food, they don't mix together. Um, and I was quite bored just watching musicians play. And it must have cost so much money to have this because they were even paying for a page turner for the pianist, which amazed me, too. So um, <laughs> so while I admire the fact that here's somebody going out on a limb trying to do something markedly different, I don't think it works at all. All right. Uh, just so, to clarify, uh, Peter, it's it's not actually opera. It's 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 uh, non-operatic classical. Uh, although Debussy, for example, also did write operas. But uh, in fact, the <laughs> the first song in this show is Beau which is a gorgeous song um, that I happened to study in college. So I was like, oh. Oh, there's that again. <laughs> and that oh. song and that song is um, <laughs> uh, aside from everything else, that song is on the album Classical Barbara. So I think a lot of people are going to recognize it when that starts. Oh, there's that Barbara Streisand song. <laughs> well, that may very well be. And again, I am totally ignorant of opera aside from Phantom of the Opera and the Three Penny Opera. And that's it for me. You know, so uh, no wonder I was confused by that. Um, so so was this considered like art song singing? Or yes, anything? exactly. Okay. Uh, I All would right. say that art songs is, is the term. Yeah. So, Michael, you got you finally got to use that piece of uh, of of information from college that you learned. Did you get to use geometry <laughs> yet today? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> There's still time. <laughs> All right. Um, next up, uh, Peter and Michael got a chance to get over to the Min Theater Company's production of The Suitcase Under the Bed at the Beckett Theater on Theater Row. So, uh, Peter, why don't you start us off with that? Well, this is by Teresa Deavy, um, uh, who was pretty much unknown until Jonathan Bank uh, unearthed her and uh, found her, an Irish playwright from um, the early part of the 20th century, a woman who went deaf as uh, her life continued. And perhaps that's one of the reasons that she became so interested in the little details of people's lives. And that's what's so impressive about the four one-act plays that we have here, that they're very Chekhovian, astonishingly so, mm. that um, <laughs> you agree, Michael, huh? Yeah. Uh, uh, that's, that's really the power of them, that they have um, moods that they create, and all things considered, I am tremendously impressed by um, her attention to detail under the circumstances where very little is happening Technically, so that's um, that's why the um, the Chekhov um, analogy uh, seems to hold for me. So there there are many uh, details that we certainly have seen in real life. Uh, a, a woman who is going to make the wrong decision about whom to marry uh, just because circumstances are not exactly the way she expected them to be. If um, if only the person would say a certain sentence at a certain time, her life would change. And the person doesn't say the sentence. And as a result, um, her life doesn't change. What I really, uh, I love the acting and um, I especially like seeing Colin Ryan, um, who plays as needless to say, four different uh, 
uh, four different roles in the in the um, well three really. He's not in the first play. But Colin Ryan is an actor I used to see in Jersey uh, when I was reviewing for the Star Ledger. He was with the Actors Shakespeare Company in Jersey City, and I always enjoyed his performance. And what was so nice is I didn't look at the playbill beforehand, and uh, suddenly I see this guy on stage and said, "Gee, he looks familiar. Who is that? Who is that? Who is that?" And really, he looks substantially different than he did in any Shakespeare plays. Um, but he plays uh, the wrong man who turns out to be the right man for the woman in this uh, second play. So um, I talked about a Drama Desk nomination for the projections in Van Gogh's Van Gogh's area. We should be saying that because they make a big point of Van Gogh. Um, <laughs> anyway. Um, I, I think wigs, uh, there's a category for wigs, um, and hairstyles, uh, in the drama desk. And, uh, certainly a, a nomination is needed here because there are so many of them as we see so many styles. So, um, so these are, uh, not quite comedy of manners, but drama of manners, you know, uh, notice even from the, um, descriptions of where they take place, the hall of Mrs. Taylor's house, the breakfast room of <laughs> Ranshorn. You know, another hall um, in, and then a grassy road. Um, and the grassy road, uh, certainly, um, the sets are, are really quite nice, considering the fact that they have to come up with four of them. Because I can't imagine the Mint Company makes a mint, but still, here we are with Vicki R. Davis having to uh, repurpose uh, one set to the next and trying to make it look as diff- uh, different as it can. And she does a very good job of that. So, so. This is a quiet evening, and don't expect fireworks of any kind during it. But we do see a writer who has paid attention to the human condition. All right, Michael. Yeah, the title, uh, just for the record, is is quite literal. It refers to, apparently, a suitcase under a bed where... Teresa Devi would store all of her manuscripts and from which they were retrieved um, over years later. And as Peter mentioned, Jonathan Bank and the Mint uh, really have have reclaimed this writer. And, and in fact, they have published two volumes of her plays, including uh, the four that we see in this in this compilation. Um, the. Uh, these four plays are, as you might imagine, each quite short. In fact, the first one, Strange Birth, I didn't actually time it, but I think it was only about 15 minutes long. Um, and also, uh, it, the the point is made in the copious notes that after um, – well, D.V. Uh, experienced a period of great popularity in writing for the Abbey Theatre – uh, in Dublin, but then that relationship uh, ended for one reason or another, and then she turned her attention to radio for a while. Uh, I couldn't actually find notes as to uh, – I know that one of these plays, Holiday House, was not written for radio because it says that in the notes. I think maybe perhaps some of the other ones were, and they have that they have that feel to them, uh, trying to get a lot of information uh, across just through text and not necessarily through staging and, and sets and things of that sort. But, um, the, uh, and there's a lot of, (laughs) um, there's a lot of very interesting plot twists in, in several of these plays. And a lot of, a lot happens in very short periods of time. Uh, even though the, uh, you know the, the the settings are are you know quite bucolic and uh, and and it's it's not it's not 
um, it's nothing like as charged as you might see in in the works of some other playwrights. But uh, she does really have Devi a, a wonderful ear for dialogue, and uh, and the the, the mint first brought her back with a production of a full length play called Wife to James Whalen, which uh, really received a lot of acclaim. Uh, so now they're excavating and seeing what else is in that suitcase, and I think it's it's a great thing to 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 find these these little items and bring them up and and put them on stage and show them to audiences so really bravo to that company well let's also say in case people have missed this point um if you went to the mint before some years back and you said oh uh, I hate going mm. there because it's such a sty. Uh, they're not there anymore. They're now on Theater Row in a very clean and uh, commodious theater downstairs uh, on that Theater Row complex. And uh, so so don't let the previous um, <laughs> digs uh, just uh, uh, <laughs> um, keep you from going to the Mint. Uh, it's, it's now a much more pleasant experience than it used to be. Oh, also, Peter mentioned Colin Ryan, who was indeed fantastic. I should mention the whole cast because it's not large and they're all great. Ellen Adair, Gina Costigan, Sarah Nicole Deaver, Cynthia Mace, Aidan Redmond, and A.J. Shively are also in the in these plays, aside from Colin Ryan. Uh, and they accounted there that, that, that seven people playing 22 roles. Uh, so this is another case where, um, yeah, <laughs> where the, uh, the, um, the dressers and the, and the wig people <laughs> uh, also deserve a lot of applause. Mm-hmm. All right. So, uh, that wraps up our on stage reviews. We have a special bonus today where uh, Michael got a chance to see Marjorie Prime at Quad Cinema. And so tell us about Marjorie Prime. Yeah, Marjorie Prime, which I saw on off-Broadway, excuse me, just a few years ago. And uh, the film is, uh, well, written and directed by Michael Almereda based on Jordan Harrison's Pulitzer Prize-nominated play. Uh, and Lois Smith, the great Lois Smith, was in the stage production and is also in the film, uh, which otherwise has a different cast, including uh, John Hamm and Tim Robbins, both. Uh, both of whom are executive producers of the movie. And then also in it is Gina Davis and Stephanie Andujar. And I can't say too much about this piece because I absolutely loved it on stage and on film. I think they did a wonderful job of adapting it without really opening it up because it didn't require that. And in fact, that probably would have destroyed it. But basically it's set um, just... it, it, you know, uh, just basically, it's set in a, some future time, not too far in the future, where um, there is a, a service has been developed that creates holographic projections of late family members so that um, these projections – uh, which speak in in the voices of the departed. They are there to the purpose is to comfort the people who are still living and who miss their dead husbands or or, or wives or children or mothers or fathers who miss them desperately. And um, it's up to the living uh, to feed memories into these holographic projections um, to uh, so that to kind of recreate. The deceased, and it's a very, very um, uh, 
moving and beautiful piece both on stage and on screen. And I did not know until quite recently that a movie was even happening. And then suddenly it was here with Lois Smith. So uh, it's at the quad currently as we speak. Uh, Hopefully it will continue there for a while. If you get to see it there or anywhere else, I highly recommend it. All right. So um, that's great. And we'll have a link to that at the show notes. Um, The Quad Cinema website's got a lot more information there about it as well. If you want to, uh, if you want to check that out. Um, This past week has been a rough week in the theater community. Um, We had a a number of, uh, of folks passed away and I wanted to get some quick reactions from, uh, from Peter and Michael about Stuart Thompson. So uh, do you guys have anything to say? I'm afraid I didn't know him. Hmm. No. So uh, Michael, Michael, did you? I had ne- I had never met the gentleman, but but certainly, you know, just just go to IBDB and put in his name. It's, uh, by the way, S T U A R T Thompson, and it's really quite extraordinary um, the accomplishments that he had as a producer and a general manager over the years. Let's see, his first credit here was uh, 1989, A Few Good Men, and then most recent credit is. Um, the is the 2017 uh, the recent uh, production of Six Degrees of Separation, and there's a lot of really amazing stuff in between, including uh, Sweat. Uh, the recently departed Sweat was one of his. And King Charles III, which we all adored, and oh yes, incident and uh, waiting for Gatto, Gatto, Death of a Salesman, A Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Jerusalem that we all loved, and Motherfucker with a Hat, uh, Book of Mormon. I mean, he had tremendous, and that's just a few of just like too many to even count productions here that we can uh, that we can talk about. Um, and then uh, we also had the passing away of Thomas Meehan, uh, who is a much uh, beloved book writer um, on Broadway. And so uh, in he, Airspray, I, yeah, yes, Mike. He, he, I did did have the pleasure to meet on more than one occasion. And as I said to several people, he was as funny in person as he is on the page, which it cannot be said of every <laughs> of every writer. And he was a total delight. Uh, I met him in, uh, in events related to, I suppose, probably both Hairspray and the producers. And he was always charming and delightful. And it, it seems that no one has anything negative to say about him. Everybody loved him. And he really, you know, book writing as a, a point we have made on many occasions is is one of the most difficult arts in musical theater and also one of the most perhaps underappreciated. But I I think it's fair to say that nobody did it better than him. Well, let's also say nobody did it better than him. And he takes a lot of um, hits because it's so successful and uh, people are, you should pardon the expression, sick of it. They shouldn't be. Um, and imagine what it was like to start that property because all we knew about Annie mm-hmm. was from the comic strip uh, with the girl with no eyes and uh, the, the bald headed guy. And you went into that theater expecting a cartoon. And by the end of the first act, you cared so much about her and so much about him 
And that's the magic of Annie. And it has so much to do with that book. The score is wonderful, yes. yes. The lyrics are incisive, fine. The music's bouncy in that wonderful Charles Charles fashion, of course. But did you ever think you were going to be emotionally involved with a cartoon character? You certainly were. And let me tell another story. Not long after I came to New York and I had no job, uh, no prospects, no money. And I used to hang outside Broadway theaters hoping that somebody would have an extra ticket, uh, hoping to buy a ticket at a few bucks, all that kind of stuff. There I was standing outside of I Remember Mama hopefully uh, wishing that somebody would come along and uh, give me a, a free ticket hmm. and or even a low-cost ticket. And there was Tom Meehan standing outside the theater looking at this pathetic guy and, and knowing, <laughs> sizing up the situation, said, would you like me to walk you in? And he did. Oh, how wonderful. And he oh, did. Oh, that's a great story. Oh. <laughs> Well, and, you know, yeah, and to amplify your point about Annie, that is so true. I mean, one could argue, yes, absolutely, the books of Hairspray and the producers uh, are phenomenal. But there was more of a template uh, mm-hmm, for sure. both of those. Whereas with Annie, he, <laughs> you know, he really had to mm. figure out the whole thing. And can mm. you imagine uh, how bad Annie could have been? You bet. Oh, it, yeah. If they yes. had gone the wrong way with it, we read things about the original conception uh, that perhaps in, initially it was going to be much more of a spoof kind of a thing. Sure, sure. Uh, it, it could be a, a completely forgotten musical. Let me also say that a lesser writer would have had Annie say leaping lizards within the first four lines. Right. And notice they save it till the end. You've forgotten all about it by the time <laughs> that it's actually said. And that is such smart writing. Yes, it, yes. Another good point. Uh, in other news on Broadway, we have uh, Denzel Washington coming back to Broadway. Um, this was kind of a surprising announcement in the middle of the uh, evening for us to to get. Um, uh, I didn't hear any rumors about this until it was it was uh, thrust upon us in the Iceman Cometh. So, uh, what do you think about Denzel coming back in the Iceman? Isn't it wonderful that he still has an interest in Broadway theater? I mean, so many of them say, well, let me do one. Let me win my Tony and go home. Um, But obviously he has a commitment. And what more of a commitment can you make than doing The Iceman Cometh? (laughs) Yeah, you don't show up for a while, but boy, this is a long play. I mean, you are giving a great deal of your time and energy if you're doing The Iceman Cometh. So really, terrific, Denzel Washington. Thank you. Will be interesting to see if... uh... If they cut it, I, I don't think that tends to happen. I think oh. people tend to avoid that at all costs. But isn't it um, – is it four and a half hours? At least four. Yeah. Yeah. So, so. I, I think we're looking at – I think we're looking at some uh, – maybe some 630 curtains. <laughs> I was just mm-hmm. going to say even 7 o'clock doesn't cut it. You know, we're going to do, mm-hmm. <laughs> to do it even yeah. earlier. And John Leguizamo, Latin History for Morons, is uh, transferring to Broadway. Um, so we will see him again. Did you guys see it, see, see it downtown at the public? Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. So uh, we'll look forward to that. Great. 
All right. So before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. This is a subscribe link that we each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to iTunes for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in iTunes. You can listen to us in many ways. One of the ways is iHeartRadio plays us. You can get us on the Google Play Store. TuneIn plays us or anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts. You can listen to us on the Stitcher app, which is an application for your iPhone or your Android device that streams us directly to you. And Broadway World Radio plays us Wednesdays at noon, Thursdays at 7 p.m. and Saturdays at 2 p.m. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me, as well as uh, links to some of the things we've talked about today can be found on the show notes at broadwayradio.com as well. So, Michael, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Yes. The question was, in what two musicals is Cheetah Rivera mentioned? Peter immediately said... <laughs> the one forbidden Broadway. The one forbidden Broadway is the one I said. I know that uh, in the Heights, um, she certainly mentioned uh, in the song "It Won't Be Long Now." That one I know, but the other one you got me, Michael. Well, uh, first of all, believe it or not, I'm embarrassed to say that I, I did not mean uh, Forbidden Broadway because I oh, guess I was thinking in terms of book musicals, but of, oh, course, absolutely. It's, yeah. of course it's still a musical, even though yes. it's, it, it's a review. But in the Heights, yeah, I, I don't know if it's in that song, uh, but there, there is a wonderful moment in that show where Usnavi, uh, the, ma- the central character, he has a tremendous crush on this girl, uh, Vanessa, but he's unable to approach her. And so at one point, his uh, cousin Sonny goes up to Vanessa and, and kind of asks if um, she might be willing to maybe go out with his cousin. And uh, there's a dance that's coming up in the neighborhood. And so Vanessa says, uh, can your cousin dance? And Sonny says, like a drunk Cheetah Rivera. So <laughs> that I know. <laughs> the other one, you got me. The other one, I, w- I would not have been able to come up with the title until of just a few weeks ago because I didn't know it. But in Really Rosie, ah. uh, the title character uh, moves uh, from uh, California to New York. She wants to become a dancer. And at one point, she's singing and, and talking about all these legendary dance figures and cheetah rivera is one of the people that she mentions ah i was out of town for really rosie yep yeah <laughs> and that that you know i mean that show was originally written for tv, TV uh, right, and only yeah. recently you know was done by uh, encores off center so uh but with all those provisos those those were the two <laughs> that i was thinking of mm-hmm. all right peter do you have a question for this week sure who played a future president in his second broadway musical and a sitting one in his fourth Broadway musicals. The presidents are one and the same. Name the actor and the two shows. Mm. All right. So if you have an answer to Peter's trivia question, email us at TriviaBroadwayRadio.com. And here's a special gift for you for listening this far into the broadcast. Uh Peter will pick a winner, and they'll get a war paint cast recording that we'll send to you as well. Uh, courtesy of the production. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. A dress rehearsal on the past The age of everlasting It's good, this lipstick. You're asking me? 
I want a useful opinion. Who else am I to ask? Very well, then. It congeals. What? Congeals? No. You wear it too thick. Hold still. With a product of quality, you have to know how to apply it. No clock. A thin layer with a deft hand. It's a pity, eh? Yes? With your pretty pink pots and my creme? We might have ruled the world. Now we stand. 